Morning, Jeff. Welcome. It's just another gorgeous day today. I mean, we've got such great weather happening right now. It's nice. I'm looking out of my window and I've got just blue everywhere in the sky. It's great. <clears throat> Morning, Rebecca. Hi, Susan. Are you back, Susan, from Chicago, or are you still in Chicago? Morning, Anne. Trang, good morning. Happy Thanksgiving to everybody. Hope everybody had a really, as Trang says, a good, healthy Thanksgiving. Morning, Suzanne. I was telling uh, uh, Lynn that uh, I had a little bit of a scare this past couple of weeks uh, and took a COVID test. And uh, fortunately it came back negative. So the sky right now is looking particularly blue, bright, and every little leaf that's still left on the trees is firmly etched in my mind. Good morning, Rich. Oh my goodness, settled in in Baltimore. Good to see that you're here. Morning, Peter. Welcome. Good morning, Andrea and Pat. Okay, Rebecca's third platform. I hope you can make it a regular part of your Sundays. That's very good to hear. Good morning, Rachel. Good morning, Christine. Welcome to West this beautiful day. Good morning to Joni and Wayne.
please remember um, if you're visiting from another ethical society, we'd really like to know so we can give you a shout out. If you want to share your messages with everyone, please be sure that your chat settings are for all panelists and attendees. This is a good time to get a candle to light during our candle lighting and then settle into a comfy chair with your beverage of choice as we continue to gather. We're now streaming live on Facebook. <clears throat> it's amazing how used you get to new technologies. I mean, the first time I was efficient uh, a, a few months ago on Zoom, I was sweating and nervous and wondering what could possibly go wrong. And in my case, anything technological always goes wrong. But here we are and feeling comfortable. Okay, well, time to settle in and uh, get your beverage of choice and we should be ready to get underway as soon as you're settled. Hey, good morning. I'm Lynn Cox. You can use they, them, or she, her pronouns for me, and I'm the interim leader here at the Washington Ethical Society. I'm coming to you from Baltimore on land that was originally the home of the Susquehannock and Piscataway peoples. In Washington, D.C., we acknowledge the original homeland of the Nacochank, the Piscataway, and the Pamunkey people. We also acknowledge that nations such as the Pamunkey, the Rappahannock, and the Upper Mattaponi still live on and care for this land, and that over 4,000 indigenous people of many nations live in Washington, D.C. today. Land acknowledgements are a first step in correcting history, building relationships, and working toward justice. May we enter into discernment about how else we, as a majority non-indigenous community, can be in right relationship with indigenous neighbors, given the history of colonization. I share this morning's opening words, remembering Felix Adler's statement that wherever people meet to seek the highest is holy ground. And these words are from Richard S. Gilbert. We meet on holy ground, brought into being as life encounters life, as personal histories merge into the communal story, as we take on the pride and pain of our companions, as separate selves become community, how desperate is our need for one another, our silent beckoning to our neighbors, our invitations to share life and death together, our welcome into the lives of those we meet and their welcome into our own. May our souls capture this treasured time. May our spirits celebrate our meeting in this time and in this space, for we meet on holy ground. Let us gather together. 
We begin today's platform with opening music from local DC musician, Micah Hendler. As you'll see in the video credits, this song was originally crafted, incorporating the hopes shared in a service at the beginning of the pandemic. This is Anna Elna, a prayer for healing. I think our tech team is going to need to try that again. Okay, we're having a, we can't, still can't hear the sound on the video. So I'm going to ask our tech team to um, stop it and we'll move on and we'll see if we can fix that later.
Okay. Thanks, folks. I'm real. I really hope we can hear that song later. It is a. It's quite beautiful. But we'll we'll move on and we'll keep working on it. Thanks, Thanks Rajesh. Lynn. Thank you, Lynn. Well, welcome to the Washington Ethical Society. I'm Rajesh, and my pronouns are he, him, his. Even as we gather in new ways, uh, sometimes with the sun, sometimes without, it is good to be together. Visitors, we especially welcome you from near and far. We hope that you'll say hello in the chat and that you might send us an email uh, through our membership coordinator, Maceo Thomas, who can be reached at Maceo, T-M-A-C-E-O-T, at ethicalsociety.org. You can also fill out a connection form. Maceo will put that link in the chat. And we hope you join us after the platform service in our Zoom coffee hour for a chance to say hello. Our chat will stay open through much of the platform service, closing for the address itself and then reopening. If you do not want to see the chat, this is a good time to minimize it on your device by clicking on the red dot in the upper left-hand corner of the chat box, clicking on the chat icon at the bottom uh, or the top of your screen, depending on your layout, and or even just sticking a post-it note on your screen where the chat is. Low tech sometimes works best. Each week, a member of our community reads our statement of purpose so that we might hear our shared values in each other's voices. If you're interested in taking a turn to read the statement of purpose, you can sign up at tiny.cc forward slash read SOP. This week, our reader is John Pfeiffer, who's a member of the chorus and a part of the platform tech team. And now I invite John to read the statement of purpose. The Washington Ethical Society is a humanistic congregation that affirms the worth of every person. We strive through our relationships to elicit the best in the human spirit. With faith in human goodness, we appreciate each person's unique capacities. We joyfully celebrate together and support each other through life. We nurture a sense of reverence and responsibility for each other and the earth. We warmly invite you to join our community of children and adults as we work for a world where love and justice cross all borders. Thank you, John. If you have a candle at home, I invite you to light it now as I share our candle lighting words. May we kindle within us the warmth of compassion, the light of understanding, and the fire of commitment to build a brighter future for all. Each week we ring a chime in solidarity with people around the world. Today, I am particularly mindful of the quarter of a million American families who have lost family members to COVID-19 and the millions who are suffering themselves from this illness. Our thoughts are with them. We would also like to hold in mind the family of Dr. Hope Johnson, who passed away recently. She was a UUA staff member who has worked with Wes in the past and has been a mentor to several religious professionals of color. As we listen to this, this chime, let us remember our connection to each other and the world around us. Let us hold in our hearts all that hurts in the world. 
and let us commit ourselves to all that calls for our work and our love. We now come to a time for meditation. Make yourselves comfortable as best you can, feet firmly planted, eyes closed, or soften your gaze if you prefer. Let's take three deep, refreshing breaths. This is the moment, now. The instant in time when past and future touch fingertips briefly. Remember this time, it is now. Between letting go of the past and grasping the future, we are here in between. Breathe in. Breathe out. Listen for every sound around you. Acknowledge these sounds. And let them go. Breathe in. Breathe out. Between who you were yesterday and who you will be tomorrow, you're here right now. Breathe in. Breathe out. Breathe in. Breathe out. We will continue our meditation in silence for a minute. Let this be the world. 
That was amazing. Thank you for that. Um, given our uh, adventures in technology, before I'm going to suggest I'm going to do a reading and then Rajesh is going to do a reading and then let's go back and enjoy that opening music. So uh, as I said, there's two readings. And the first is from Emily Esfahani Smith. She is a researcher in positive psychology and the author of The Power of Meaning, Crafting a Life That Matters. In her talk, There's More to Life Than Being Happy, Esfahani Smith says there are four pillars to a meaningful life, belonging, purpose, transcendence, and storytelling. And this excerpt comes from the part about storytelling. Creating a narrative from the events of your life brings clarity. It helps you understand how you became you. But we don't always realize that we are the authors of our stories and we can change the way we're telling them. Your life isn't just a list of events. You can edit, interpret, and retell your story even as you are constrained by the facts. And she continues, what makes people change their stories? 
Some people get help from a therapist, but you can do it on your own too, just by reflecting on your life thoughtfully, how your defining experiences shaped you, what you lost, what you gained. You won't change your story overnight, but embracing those painful memories can lead to new insights and wisdom, to finding the good that sustains you. So ends the first reading. The second reading is an excerpt from A People's History of the United States by Howard Zinn. I've, I read this book myself when my kids were reading it at high school and I really, really thoroughly enjoyed it. <clears throat> the second reading is um, the revised and updated edition by the late Howard Zinn uh, and it goes like this. It's not that the historian can avoid emphasis on some facts and not on others. This is as natural to him as to the map maker who, in order to produce a usable drawing for practical purposes, must first flatten and distort the shape of the earth, then choose out of the bewildering mass of geographic information, those things needed for the purpose of this or that particular map. My argument cannot be against selection, simplification, emphasis, which are inevitable for both cartographers and historians. But the map maker's distortion is a technical necessity for a common purpose shared by all who need maps. The historian's distortion is more than technical, it's ideological. It is re released into a world of contending interests where any chosen emphasis supports whether the historian means to or not some kind of interest, whether economic or political or racial or national or sexual. Furthermore, this ideological interest is not openly expressed in the way a mapmaker's technical interest is obvious. This is a Mercator projection of law for long range navigation. For short range, you'd better use a different projection. No, it is presented as if all readers of history held a common interest, which historians serve to the best of their ability. This is not intentional deception. The historian has been trained in a society in which education and knowledge are put forward as technical problems of excellence and not as tools for contending social classes, races, or nations. To emphasize the heroism of Columbus and his successors as navigators and discoverers, and to de-emphasize their genocide, is not a technical necessity, but an ideological choice. It serves, unwittingly, to justify what was done. My point is not that we must, in telling history, accuse, judge, condemn Columbus in absentia. It's too late for that. It would be a useless scholarly exercise in morality, but the easy acceptance of atrocities as a deplorable but necessary price to pay for progress, Hiroshima and Vietnam to save Western civilization, Kronstadt and Hungary to save socialism, nuclear proliferation to save us all, that is still with us. One reason these atrocities are still with us is that we have learned to bury them in a mass of other facts, as radioactive wastes are buried in containers in the earth. 
we have learned to give them exactly the same proportion of attention that teachers and writers often give them in the most respectable of classrooms and textbooks. This learned sense of moral proportion coming from the apparent objectivity of the scholar is accepted more easily than when it comes from politicians at press conferences. It is therefore more deadly. Thank you. 
seen the movie Captain Marvel? You know I did. Back when going to movie theaters was a safe thing to do, I saw it in the theater, and the nostalgia for the music of the mid-1990s alone was enough to catch my interest. So I don't want to spoil it for those who are waiting for a quiet evening to watch it at home, and so I'll try to speak in general terms. The movie opens with an interstellar super soldier named Verse, who is having trouble with memory but nevertheless goes out on a mission with her team, part of the Kree Empire. Throughout the movie, she learns more and more about where she came from and more about the origins of the conflict with the people she thought were her enemies. Once she's come around to a different understanding of who her people are, the personal qualities that she's been criticized for are reframed and she can draw from them as strengths. And this revised worldview moves her to an entirely different sense of her mission in life, as well as a different sense of connecting and belonging. The paradigm shift that the main character goes through in Captain Marvel reminds me of the power of origin stories. The stories we tell ourselves about ourselves as individuals, as communities, as countries, affect how we reach out to others and what we think we're capable of. As we reflect on this holiday weekend, we're confronted with one version of the origin story of the United States, the one some of us were presented with as children as the, at this time of year. That version of the story is infused with myths and half-truths and depends on the erasure of the historical and contemporary perspectives of Native Americans, among other groups. Whether we are dismantling the settler colonial narrative, incorporating new insights into our understanding of ourselves as a community, or finding personal empowerment in reframing our individual origin stories, returning to the stories about beginnings or turning points with open minds can help us to reshape our future. Whether we are speaking individually or collectively, origin stories matter. Events get baked into information we regard as fact or perhaps legend. Left unexamined, these stories can divide people who need not be divided and disempower people who could be living fruitful, generous lives. 
It matters how we tell those stories. The inclusion of truths or half-truths and which facts are emphasized or glossed over makes a difference. In communal stories, those whose perspective is centered makes a difference. The way we understand the narrative structure of the story is also a choice. The good news is that stories can be reframed, even within the bounds of verifiable facts. Origins are not destinies. We can rearrange the emphasis, lift up silenced voices, and find strengths that had previously been minimized. That's what we're talking about today. With regard to both individual and collective narratives, origin stories matter, the way we tell origin stories matters, and origin stories can be reframed. Earlier, we heard an excerpt from a talk by Emily S. Fahani Smith, and she has done interviews and followed studies in positive psychology, first asking the question about what makes people happy, and then shifting to the question of what helps people live meaningful lives. She said, creating a narrative from the events of your life brings clarity. It helps you understand how you became you. In her review of available research, she found that the stories people tell about the pivotal events of their lives can affect how they feel about themselves, their level of confidence or anxiety, and what behaviors they choose in the future as they subconsciously live by their stories. I'd like to add a caveat that not everything in our personal narratives is about perspective or attitude. Sometimes a person's anxiety or adaptive behaviors are shaped by oppression, trauma, or other circumstances. Even so, examining our lives for the agency and resilience that we do have gives us some extra tools and is worth a try. When you add humans together to tell a collective story about the turning points of a community or a movement or a country, origin stories can have an even wider impact. Last month, I drew from an indigenous people's history of the United States by Roxanne Dunbar-Ortiz when we discussed Christopher Columbus. In the introduction to her book and her reference to Thanksgiving, Dunbar-Ortiz wrote, origin narratives form the vital core of a people's unifying identity and of the values that guide them. In the United States, the founding and development of the Anglo-American settler state involves a narrative about Puritan settlers who had a covenant with God to take the land. And then in chapter three, Dunbar-Ortiz picks up this thread again. The United States is not unique among nations in forging an origin myth but most of its citizens believe it to be exceptional among nation states. And this exceptionalist ideology has been used to justify appropriation of the continent and then domination of the rest of the world. In other words, Dunbar-Ortiz credits the mythological version of the Thanksgiving story, a particular version of the origin story of the United States with fueling some of the worst behaviors of the United States and many of its citizens. A story that was framed to make heroes out of the pilgrims and inspire patriotism has also inspired exploitation, theft, and violence. 
Dunbar-Ortiz is not alone in this observation. James Lowen, in Lies My Teacher Told Me, Everything Your American History Textbook Got Wrong, also unpacks the Thanksgiving story as an origin myth with devastating consequences. Lowen says that in the cases where the Thanksgiving holiday is observed without examination or critique, the civil ritual marginalizes Native Americans. That marginalization comes not only from perspective or emphasis, but from actual falsehoods that are retold in mythic versions of the story. These false myths serve to reinforce what Lowen calls white ethnocentrism. He says that when textbooks promote this version of the story, they diminish the capacity of students to understand the culture they are in or how to relate to each other. At the time of his original writing, the term white supremacy culture was not as widely in use as it is now, but it is apt in this case. The outdated version of the Thanksgiving story idolized the colonizers and erased the humanity of indigenous people they encountered. And this is both a manifestation of and fuel for white supremacy culture. We're finding that just as our personal origin stories can lead us to make choices so that we live by those stories, national origin stories guide our future behavior. Origin stories matter. Now that we've established that personal and collective origin stories can have an impact on our self-concept and our future choices, let's talk about how we can tell those stories. We have choices in the perspectives and events we emphasize and in the shape of the narrative arc. Earlier, we heard a passage from A People's History of the United States by Howard Zinn, in which he draws an analogy between historians and map, ma map makers. Zinn is more generous toward map makers or cartographers than I would be, saying that the choices about what projections to use or what details to include in a map are mainly technical. I think that maps are much more political than he implies in this comparison, but the point stands that both historians and cartographers have to make choices in conveying information. It is incumbent upon us to examine our purpose in making those choices and to think about the impact of those choices. How we tell the story matters. And this is where the collective storytelling and the personal storytelling intersect. As we are figuring out how to tell our personal stories, we're also trying to figure out how we fit into the larger picture. When we are not truthful, in our collective stories, we make this task of fitting into the larger story much more difficult for everyone, especially those who have been marginalized. If we have the privilege and responsibility of telling a collective story, we should try to ensure that all of the people in that story are reflected as their whole selves. Incorporating multiple perspectives into our stories makes it easier for the community and for individuals to understand ourselves and to find meaning and purpose. My colleague, Joan Johnson Lewis from the Riverdale Yonkers Society for Ethical Culture has demonstrated this beautifully in her research about the history and historiography of the reconstruction era. She notes that the narratives of the civil war and the reconstruction period that were taught in school for decades do not match the evidence. 
Starting in the 1920s, professional historians who were collectively known as the Dunning School were training school teachers to talk about the Civil War as a matter of states' rights, despite the fact that all of the documents about secession referred to slavery. And the founding of the Confederacy did not allow states to have the right to opt out of slavery. This tradition that referred to Reconstruction as a disaster, a burden placed on the South, meaning white landowners of the South, by opportunistic Northerners. The Dunning School presented an egregious misrepresentation of the facts of Reconstruction and was part of perpetuating the idea that African-American people were not capable of self-determination. This view lent support to voter suppression tactics such as liter literacy tests and fed white racist resentment that is still an active force in politics today. The deliberate revisions of the Dunning School were partly the work of David Saville Muzzy. Muzzy was not only a professor of history, but also an ethical culture leader. Muzzy wrote a history textbook that was heavily in use from 1927 to 1938 and was source material for textbooks for at least another generation. If we're going to note the successes of ethical culturists throughout history in promoting justice, we also have to examine the ways ethical culturists supported white supremacy culture. By learning from the mistakes of our kindred in the past, we can help prevent ourselves and our successors from repeating them. According to Joan Johnson Lewis, part of Muzzy's goal was to tell the story of the United States as a gradually unfolding arc of human rights. Acknowledging the initial flowering of human rights and democracy immediately after the Civil War, before the backlash against Reconstruction led to voter suppression, Jim Crow laws, and the great nadir of civil rights, that didn't work for Muzzy. Being honest about the steps forward and steps backward did not match the shape of the gradual arc Muzzy was trying to fit history into and did not comport with Muzzy's racist views about what African-American leaders and thinkers were capable of. He rejected evidence that did not fit his hypothesis. And because of that, generations of students were taught a false history of the Civil War and Reconstruction. There are a couple of things we can learn here. We can learn that impact matters more than intent. We learn that stories about a community or a culture should include the perspectives of all of the groups in that community or culture. Primary sources from the people who are most deeply affected are important in lifting up a complete history. In our local communities, we should be asking whose voices are missing. As a point relevant to both collective origin stories and personal origin stories, sometimes the truth that is most important to tell does not follow a smooth narrative arc. Neither our individual lives nor our shared history necessarily follows a three-act structure or a linear path. History does not always make narrative sense, even if the events follow a logical sequence of cause and effect. Trying to force our personal or shared history to follow a straight line might lead us to cut off important branches of truth. Anthropologist Mary Catherine Bateson wrote about how this affects our personal stories 
in her 1989 book, Composing a Life. She wrote that how we grow and change is less like building a linear brick wall and more like improvisational cooking or quilting, putting a life together with the bits and pieces we have in the time available. Noting that people who have been marginalized don't have the luxury of being able to hold a singular focus, Bateson said that a non-linear art of living has equal dignity and grace. How we tell our stories matters. It matters that we include truth. It matters when we include multiple perspectives in a collective story. It matters that we allow our stories to take their natural twists and turns. When it comes to our personal stories, we need not be ashamed when our journeys don't follow a simple or well-recognized path. Meaning can arise from growth and learning and we don't always arrive at growth and learning by the direct route. Realizing that stories need not be linear helps to remind us that it's not over until it's over. We're not bound to keep going in what is now the wrong direction. Make some room. How we tell our stories matters. A corollary to this idea that we can choose how to tell our origin stories is that at any time we can choose to reframe those stories. We are not stuck with narratives that are inauthentic. We can emphasize different events and different voices to help us figure out a path for the future. Taking the myth of Thanksgiving as an example, if we are going to treat it as an origin story for the United States, we can reframe that story by correcting falsehoods and expanding the sources we consult. In 1970, the Massachusetts Department of Commerce asked the Wampanoag people to select a speaker for a Thanksgiving event to mark the 350th anniversary of the English arrival at Plymouth Rock. Frank James, also known as Wamsetta, had to show the event planners what he had written. The organizers did not allow him to read it and offered him a different speech, which he refused to read. Instead, Frank James gave his original speech on Coles Hill, next to the statue of former Wampanoag leader Usamaquen, to a crowd of supporters. This became the first day of mourning, now an annual event of the United American Indians of New England. It was a turning point in the Native American movement in the United States. James's speech included this acknowledgement of history. It is with mixed emotion that I stand here to share my thoughts. This is a time of celebration for you, celebrating an anniversary of a beginning for the white man in America, a time of looking back, of reflection. It is with a heavy heart that I look back upon what happened to my people. Even before the pilgrims landed, it was common practice for explorers to capture Indians, take them to Europe, and sell them as slaves for 220 shillings apiece. The pilgrims had hardly explored the shores of Cape Cod for four days before they had robbed the graves of my ancestors and stolen their corn and beans. James goes on from there, addressing more of the history of oppression against Native Americans, the way history was being taught in American schools, and the continued persistence and resilience of the Wampanoag and other indigenous people. Remembering that the English colonizers who arrived at Plymouth Rock were not innocent or peaceful, 
remembering that they committed theft and violence on the original inhabitants of the land both before and after the event that is remembered as the first Thanksgiving means that we can no longer base a national identity on trying to emulate this origin story. It means we can't pretend ignorance and wonder where it all went wrong when we look at the atrocities committed in the name of the United States in the intervening 400 years. But it also means we have a choice about what to do differently. We can commit to not repeating the past. We can learn to tell our stories differently. The history of Frank James and the first day of mourning is incorporated into materials for the 400th anniversary of the landing at Plymouth Rock. An origin is not a destiny. Collectively, we are the authors of the future of our communities and our nation. Individually, as Emily Esfahani Smith reminds us, we are the authors of our own stories. As we heard earlier, your life isn't just a list of events. You can edit, interpret, and retell your story even as you are constrained by the facts. Just as with the process of updating our collective stories, reframing our personal stories may be hard, even painful. We will have to face uncomfortable truths. Yet out of those truths, we may find an ability to learn and grow, a sense of meaning and purpose, and capacity for acceptance and compassion that comes from a wholehearted experience. By changing the emphasis of our stories, we may find a call to service or a desire to make amends or a sense of connection with those who share similar experience. The power to reframe our stories is in our hands. The stories of our beginnings as individuals, as communities, and as a nation have power. They can move us toward compassion and connection or they can move us toward division and disrespect. But that power is not absolute. We can take responsibility for comparing those stories with the available evidence and for examining the story from a variety of perspectives. We can reframe a story as we learn from both mistakes and successes, seeking purpose amidst the patchwork of love and care that sustains the best in us and those around us. May it be so for each and all. After some music, we're going to have some community sharing time when you can write into the chat about what resonated with you today. A framing question might help to spark a memory of a personal experience or your direct observation. It's like a writing prompt. You can use it or not. Today's framing question is, when has a story from history or from your own past inspired you to grow? The history of the world and many of our personal journeys include triumphs and struggles, good choices and bad choices. How have these stories inspired you to keep learning, to seek healing, to do things differently, or to make meaning? How are you taking the stories of beginnings and reframing them? As we contemplate, rest, and reflect, let's experience the beauty of the musical response from Melanie Damore. Hello, UU family. 
I'm going to sing a song with you called Shine On Me. It's an amazing spiritual that anybody can sing. And in these days when the things that we're dealing with, the feeling separate and all of that, and things seem so hard, this is one of those songs that you just throw your head back, put it in your medicine kit. All you have to do is ask. And here's how it goes. Shine on me, oh, shine on me. Let the light from the lighthouse shine on me, oh, shine on me, yes, shine on me. Let the light from the lighthouse shine on me. Lift me up, only lift me up. Let the light from the lighthouse lift me up. Yes, lift me up. Let the light from the lighthouse lift me up. Oh, hold, hold me close. Yes, hold me close. Let the light. From the light, from the lighthouse, hold me close. Yes, hold me close. So hold me close. Let the light from the lighthouse, please, hold me so shine on me, yes, shine on me. Let the light from the lighthouse shine on me. Oh, shine on me, yes, shine on me. Let the light from the lighthouse shine Wow. That is awesome. Well, this is the time we add our own voices to the morning, sharing our reflections on the platform and what resonates in our own lives. You may consider the framing question that uh, Lynn shared. When, when has a story from history or from your own past inspired you to grow? I invite you to share in the Zoom chat or Facebook comments. And I will try to read as 
the comments collect on the chat. <clears throat> Judy uh, Maya says, a sad thought occurred to me as I listened this morning that the pandemic has been such an opportunity for unity on an immense countrywide and worldwide scale and instead has been guided, guided and frittered away by the toddler in the White House to serve a larger and larger, serve as a larger and larger wedge. What a remarkable development, says Peter Bishop in online religious services, the one-person chorus leading a two-person congregation who are all the same person. <clears throat> Trish says that was a really exceptional performance. The Briskin Limehouses say neat. <clears throat> Beth Baker says, when I learned that there were three known lynchings in Montgomery County, I was inspired to become active in the MoCo Lynching Memorial Project, where we believe that only by facing our painful history can we move towards racial healing and reconciliation. Uh, from Maceo, how we tell the story matters. Lynn, I was looking forward to this platform and boom, you start off with a Marvel reference. I tell people I learned to read from comics. There are so many retellings of origin stories in that medium that it totally makes a kid question, what's really going on? One of my favorite quotes, uh, sorry, I've lost track of that. Uh, one of my favorite quotes, you know, this chat keeps moving upward as I keep reading and it's a bit of a nuisance. One second. Uh, uh, in my comic reading days is when someone accuses the X-Men of being terrorists and Wolverine responds, terrorists are what the big army calls the small army. I often reflect on that as we receive news of the world about terrorists and enemies. And also James Lowen has a grandson named Maceo. Trish, thank you, Lynn, for the idea of reframing one's own personal story since Trump, my resentment of his attitudes in my own personal history growing up in Alabama has turned very bitter, need to do some work. Hunter says, I'm regularly inspired by labor unions of the past to fight for fairer labor practices today. From Julie, amazing platform, Lynn. I hadn't known about David Muzzy. I read Howard Zinn's People History 30 years ago and it was life-changing. It was an intersectional. It was intersectional in telling the truth about how oppression was baked into our country. Uh, by the way, check out this interactive map of indigenous tribes past and present. This in and of itself tells a powerful story. And in the chat, um, Julie gives the, um, uh, the uh, URL, HTTPS colon forward double slash nativeland.ca. Peter Bishop. For me, I've been inspired uh, more by people and less by stories. I'm now learning that my idea about Charles Pierce was all wrong, but it was very inspiring for me because I identified with him. Abigail says, composing a life by Catherine Ann Bateson, a book mentioned by Lynn in her talk has, was given to me by my high school, uh, upon my high school graduation over 30 years ago and has guided me ever since. Maceo. The other great book for people 
uh, to read my loan is sundown towns. When we talk about land, Chevy Chase was a sundown town. Uh, the Briskin Limehouses. Plus one for reading Howard Zinn. It really forced me to reevaluate my understanding of history after having grown up with the state's rights vision of the Civil War being gospel in the high school that I attended. Michael, Lynn, your platforms were so dense with, um, with, uh, with knowledge and critical thought. I hope they are or will be published somewhere for further reading. Rich from Baltimore, although I or my ancestors had no role in the harm we have done to Native Americans or Blacks, we all benefited from these tragedies. Alex Abbott, for people interested in cartography and its relationship with history, economics, politics, etc., I also recommend Jerry Broughton's A History of the World in 12 Maps. Rich, not only financially, but uh, sorry, only financially, but not ethically, as a continuation of his earlier comment. Lynn says, yes, here there will be a text with links on the members section of the West website. <clears throat> Just as we share our perspectives in this community and will continue to do so, so too do we share our resources and gifts. Here at West, half of the Sunday collection goes towards supporting the mission and activities of this congregation and half of undesignated donations are shared with a program whose values resonate with our own ethical culture principles. Both are important, especially as West and all our community partners are transforming to meet the needs and challenges of the current chapter of history. As we prepare for the collection, I would like to repeat our welcome to visitors. We invite you to be our guests today and to ask our visitors not to feel pressured by the collection. We appreciate each person's generous giving as they are able. This month, our partner is the Washington Interface Network, also known as WIN. The Washington Ethical Society is a proud member of WIN. Founded in 1996, WIN is a broad-based, multiracial, multi-faith, strictly non-partisan, district-wide citizen power organization rooted in local congregations and associations. WIN is committed to training and developing neighborhood leaders to address community issues, and to hold elected and corporate officials accountable in Washington, DC. You'll see we have a give by text option on the number on the screen, which is 202-335-1885. And you can make a gift also online through the donate button on our website at ethicalsociety.org. We will now receive your gifts and the musicians' gifts of music. Earth is our mother, 
so much to the many people who helped to create this morning's time together. Interim music coordinator Leah Morris, along with guest musicians Micah Hendler, uh, Melanie Demore, and our own West Chorus. Thank you to Maceo Thomas, our membership coordinator. Thank you also to Jen Watson, who created our beautiful slides, and to Robin Kravitz for the communication support and hosting our coffee hour. And thank you to tech host Johnny Buzek, who very, very bravely battled through all the difficulties we had this morning and helped us to listen to Micah's music again. And thank you to those who are leading and supporting our work in the week to come. At the conclusion of the platform, please join us for virtual coffee hour. Once we are in the Zoom coffee hour space, we'll divide into breakout groups uh, for small group social chatting to get to the coffee hour after closing words, and this won't work before the platform has ended, point your browser to tiny.cc forward slash West Coffee Hour. Next week, please join us right back here at 10.30 a.m. Interim leader Lynn Cox will speak about responding to stressful situations by first grounding ourselves in our values. There's still a little bit of time to participate in the Giving Tree. Members received a link to sign up to donate to the Giving Tree benefiting a wider circle. Uh, you can find more information in this past Thursday's news and notes or uh, news and notes email or contact Genevieve McDowell Owen. Uh, please ensure your donations are delivered by the 5th of December. We have opportunities for West members and friends to connect virtually during the week, including support meetings and discussion groups. You can find the details for all of that and other events on our website calendar at https colon for, double forward slash ethicalsociety.org forward slash. Finally, thank you for being here with us. Let's enjoy together our closing song for the month, Where Do We Come From? Recorded by Leah Morris with the help of West musicians and singers. Where do we come from? What are we? Where are we going? Where do we come from? What are we? Where are we going? Where are we? What are we? Where are we? Where are we? Mystery, mystery.
listen to it again that would have been fabulous too <laughs> and now i invite you to join me in our closing words let us go into the week ahead seeking and offering healing for ourselves each other and our neighbors in our quest for a better world once again, please join us for Virtual Coffee Hour. You can find the link on the slide or in the chat. <clears throat> if you're new to our community, please send an email to our membership coordinator, Maceo Thomas, and introduce yourself. And thank you, everybody. Um, let me see if there are any more. Oh, yeah, the Trish says the child's voice was genius take care everybody uh let's see if there are any more comments oh thank you to Anne Glendening uh, welcomes to Elaine who's just joined this community Shayla says I love the song has positive memories of my childhood going to church Elaine introduced herself. I'm Elaine Park, a shiny new participant in Westerday. At age eight, with an overbearingly proper mom, I became a jello thief, preferring the sweet sour granules to a prepared jello. As the deliciously sweet success filled me, I first discovered the gnawing tickle of conscience. <laughs> I hope everybody joins in the coffee hour. I look forward to seeing you there. Uh, Christine says she had problems hearing the music on her system. Some of us actually had difficulties and I'm sorry about that, but uh, we had glitches in the system which were beyond our control. Um, hope we don't suffer from them next week, Christine. Uh, <clears throat> okay, please do join in the coffee hour as we move to the next event in the West Calendar. <clears throat>